0: Mark chapter 3, we'll start in verse 7 here in just a second. The week before last, I went with our staff to a conference in Louisville, Kentucky. It was a great conference, had a good time. And then uh, Pete and I, our youth pastor and I, flew back home together on that Friday. We went to the airport and as we were checking in, Pete was in line in front of me. He went to the counter first. He's talking to the lady at the counter and then that lady waved me over And so I walked up there and stood next to Pete, and the lady said to me, Is this guy your bodyguard? And I was a little offended. I'm not what you would call dainty, nothing about me exudes toughness, that's for sure, but I'm tall at least. Uh, But I'm not Pete, (laughs) right? And so, uh, and the truth is, when you walk around an airport or any place with someone like Pete, you just, you feel strong, you feel invincible, you feel well protected. And it's true that in a moment of conflict, Pete could tear the other person's arms off easily, but it's not even going to get there because all Pete has to do is just, you know, give a, raise an eyebrow, give a look, do something, and, and the conflict is settled. They're going to look for a more susceptible target. So, walking with Pete, I, I recommend it for you. He's <laughs> for hire, for bodyguard work. But, uh, man, when you got someone, someone big like that by your side, it gives you a whole lot of confidence. In the Christian life, We need Jesus to make himself known to us in a lot of different situations and in a lot of different ways. There are times when we need Jesus to be gentle. There's times when we need the tenderness of Jesus. There's times when we need the rest of Jesus. And there are times when we need Jesus to fight, to be our defender, to be our protector. And when we experience Christ in that way, It gives the believer confidence in the face of every battle, every trial, every struggle, every threat, every attack of the enemy. When Christ is our fighter, defender, protector, the sheep walk strong in him. And what we've seen in our study of the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus is fighting for his people at every turn, I mean, the book opens with Jesus after his uh, baptism, goes into the wilderness, and squares off with Satan. That's not some theological debate. That is warfare of the highest degree. And then at every step so far along the way, Jesus is engaging in the fight to rescue his people from sin and all of its manifestations. Just last week, we finished up a section in the Gospel of Mark. It starts at chapter 2, verse 1. It ends at chapter 3, verse 6. And in that section, there are five rapid-fire instances where Jesus faces off in opposition against religious professionals who oppose him and attack him. And ultimately, chapter 3, verse 6, if you remember from last week, it ends with them plotting his death. Jesus has come to fight. And you need that fighter on your side. I wonder what your condition is like this morning. I wonder if you come in beat up, a bit worn out. I wonder if you lied through your teeth when someone said, how are you today? And you said, I'm fine. We're prone to do that. I wonder if you need a fighter. That's what Jesus is. In the passage we're going to study this morning To borrow a term from last week's sermon, we're going to see Jesus, who is no tame lion, fight on behalf of his people. And then the most amazing thing, he takes the people he's fought for and he turns them into fighters themselves. So I think if we study this passage right today, it's going to have a couple of different outcomes in our lives. We're going to be encouraged by how we see Jesus comes to our defense and acts on our behalf. And then we're going to be emboldened in our fight against sin in our own life, in our fight against the enemy in the world around us. I like our chances today when we set our eyes on Jesus, who is our fighter and our defender. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 3. We'll start in verse 7. We've got two scenes that we're going to read this morning. One scene happens by the Sea of Galilee. The next scene happens up on a mountainside near the Sea of Galilee. One scene happens with a large crowd of people. The other scene happens with a small group of people. These two scenes show us Jesus fighting and assembling fighters. Chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Jumea and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. We're going to find confidence In two places this morning, in each of these scenes, we're going to find confidence in the face of battle. So, if you're taking notes, the first place we find confidence this morning in the face of our battle, Jesus fights for his people. Verses 7 through 12, Jesus fights for his people. So, here's our first scene in verses 7 through 12 Jesus and his disciples are trying to get away, they go down to the Sea of Galilee. Uh, But there's a a huge crowd, a mass of people that follow Him. Now this whole action of Jesus withdrawing, trying to get away, is not something new to us. Jesus has done it multiple times already in the Gospel of Mark. After His baptism, He's alone in the wilderness. Uh, And then uh, after a heavy day of ministry and healing in chapter 1, He withdraws to a solitary place to pray. Towards the end of chapter 1, after He heals the leper, You remember his popularity spread so far and so quickly that he could not get alone anymore. He'd go out into the wilderness to be alone and the people would flock to him. We find that again here in chapter 3. Jesus and his disciples have withdrawn and the crowds follow him. They won't leave him alone. We're told that this crowd is following Jesus, but they're not following Jesus in the sense of discipleship. They're following him for his miracles, Right? His reputation has spread, the healing he does uh, has made the rounds in all these surrounding communities. Mark gives us a list of places from which people are coming to see Jesus and to see his miracles and experience his miracles. In short, Mark tells us people are coming from north, south, east, and west, from all over. People are coming to see Jesus and encounter his miracles. So here's this scene. It, it's, it, to me, it seems quite chaotic as people are pressing in around Jesus. The mob gets the attention in the text. But if we cut through that mob and we look at Jesus, we see Jesus fighting in three different ways for his people. Three different enemies are, are present in this crowd, and Jesus goes toe-to-toe with each of them. The first way Jesus fights is he fights the decay of this world by healing broken people so if you were to take a time machine back to the first century and you land in somewhere in the Galilee region and you want to know where Jesus is all you would have to do is find the parade of sick people and go where they're walking limping blind deaf sick where are they walking they're going to Jesus That sad parade will take you to the place where Jesus is. And that's what's happening here. People from all over funneling into this location looking for Jesus. A sad parade of people who are sick and in need of healing. Mark tells us these people are from all over the place. And and they've come to Jesus for one explicit reason. They've come for healing. They've come for the miracle. Now is it so wrong that these people have come to Jesus for healing? I, I would say no, it's not wrong. If I'm a person in that part of the world, if I'm a person in this part of the world, I face sickness, illness, I'm not finding healing, I'm going to Jesus for this miracle. And so why wouldn't you, if you were a sick person on that day, travel from far away to find Jesus if you've heard of the miracles he's done? Or why wouldn't you, if you had a loved one who was sick and in need, carry them a long distance to find Jesus? And the people... In this story, they're afflicted by the sinful decay of this world. These diseases, sicknesses, this human brokenness, this is not part of God's original plan. This is not His perfect creation. Sin brought all of this into the world. And so here are these people afflicted by sin and all of its decay. And when they are with Jesus, things are different. They get a foretaste of what eternity is going to be like. They get a foretaste of what His eternal kingdom is going to be like. In His presence, there is no more crying or sickness or pain. That sad parade that finds Jesus leaves Jesus rejoicing, dancing, praising for what they've experienced in Him. These last few weeks in Mark have, have been remarkable because time and again, we see Jesus as the healer and defender of his people. He heals the man with leprosy. He heals the paralyzed man who's lowered through the roof. He heals the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. These sicknesses are not part of God's design, the result of sin, and Jesus comes to set these things right with his gracious healing of his afflicted people. And so if that's you today, come in here beat up, Soul weary, tired to your bone, you've got to hear this that Jesus loves you and He welcomes you. He wants you to be with Him. Every Sunday that we gather, there's a sense in which we are that sad parade of people in need gathering together to meet with Jesus, to hear what He says, to experience the power of His people together. When we come together like this, Jesus is manifest in the word preached, the word sung, the word prayed, the word fellowshiped around. We come here for edification and encouragement and strength and healing. When we're with Jesus, He sets these things right. There's another way Jesus fights for us in this story, though. He fights for us by Healing his people afflicted by sin and all of its decay. But Jesus also fights against the misunderstanding of his people. The way they misunderstand him. Verses 9 and 10. Look, on on the one hand, it's understandable that they're pursuing Jesus for a miracle. But on the other hand, so many of these people, the vast majority, they miss the point entirely. They completely misunderstand who Jesus is. He's not... A a mere miracle worker. He's not just some miracle man, he is the Savior. And the miracles that Jesus does are secondary to the greater message he preaches that in him is the kingdom of God arrived and arriving. The message of Jesus is of utmost importance, far more importance than the miracles themselves. Those miracles are just a foretaste, they're not the full banquet. Jesus himself said in chapter 1 of Mark that his mission is to preach. That's what he's come to do, is to travel around to these villages, these areas, and preach the good news of God. Now, if we're to be critical, it might be hard for us to process that a bit. We might accuse Jesus of not really caring about what people suffer, and instead just speaking the gospel of God. People have real needs. Those needs ought to be met. It seems that Jesus, again, if we're being critical, kind of undercuts that by saying there's something more important than meeting that need. But that's just silly. Of course, Jesus cared about people's suffering. But you see, the secondary nature of the miracles is seen in this way. When Jesus healed people, he didn't give them infinite health. Every person that Jesus healed eventually died. You're healed of leprosy today. Years later, heart disease takes you or something. Who knows what it is? Even our man Lazarus was raised from the dead once, not twice. Everyone Jesus healed eventually dies because the miracles are not the main thing. Those are not the primary reason Jesus is here. The miracles are subservient to the message Jesus preaches. So he's not going to confine himself to the misconceptions of His people. They come saying, we want miracle, miracle, miracle. Jesus isn't going to just give them miracles and call it good. And how do we know that from the story? Because of verse 9. Verse 9, because of the crowd, He told His disciples to have a small boat ready for Him to keep the people from crowding Him. So remember, they're, they're on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. In the face of this pressing mob, Jesus has a boat ready. And what's the purpose of the boat? It's not an escape pod. It's a lectern. It's this. It's his stage. And against the misconceptions of these people who, yes, need healing and want healing, against that misconception, Jesus will stand and proclaim the good news of God that these people need to hear. He gives them what is best, although they seek what is secondary. And isn't that the way of Jesus so often with us? That Jesus gives us what is best even when we're asking for something that is lesser than. So many times we come to Jesus like a toddler who decides she'll only be happy if she can only eat cookies for every meal. This is what will give me happiness in life! But Jesus, like a good parent won't give just what the child wants. He gives what the child needs. He gives what is best. Even when the child can't process for himself or herself what best is, Jesus, in his grace, still gives what is best. He won't just give the secondary thing, in this case, the miracle. He gives the best thing, in this case, the proclamation of the kingdom that leads to eternal life. Jesus wants you to experience more than healing now and a funeral later. He wants you to know that healing that lasts forever, that life that is everlasting, that place where there's not a cemetery across the street from the church. He wants you to know that glory forever and ever and ever. He's going to give you the thing that you require most. That's the gift of himself for the sake of your salvation. So when Jesus preaches in this situation, he's giving the people that which is best. He's fighting for them.
1: There's a third way in
0: this mob scene Jesus fights for his people. He fights against demonic forces by silencing them. Verse 11, whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. This is not the first time we've come across people in Jesus' proximity who are under the influence, the possession of demons. These unfortunate people, their wills have been hijacked by these evil spirits. And in this scene, when Jesus walks by, they cry out, you are the Son of God. There's a sick irony there. The irony is that the enemies of God recognize who Jesus is, while the objects of His grace, His people, they struggle to know fully who He is. In this statement on behalf of the demons, what they say is is not a welcome statement on Jesus' part. It's not welcome because it's not as if they are cowering in fear at the manifest power and glory of Jesus in this scene. Oh, you're the Son of God. That's not it at all. In this scene, the statement on the part of the demons is an attempt to control Jesus. To know his name, his identity, to call it out is an attempt on their part to work against him. So when they cry out, you are the son of God, it's not some demonic cry of exaltation or recognition. What they recognize is, this is my adversary. They act against him. They want him done with. And Jesus, what does he do? In a display of his sovereign power, He silences them. He rebukes them. Now, this scene may not fit well with our modern Baptist sensibilities. Anytime we read about demon possession and and Jesus casting out demons or the disciples being empowered to do this same work, It's something that we get squeamish about and we don't understand. And I'll confess, there's a lot about it that I'm still trying to learn and understand myself. But here's the point Mark is getting across to us in every one of these scenes. Jesus is the supreme, sovereign, mighty power over every spiritual adversary. You don't have to read fast past this because you don't understand it. You can put down your Bible and lift your hands in praise to your mighty, powerful God who puts down every scheme of Satan, every devil that is sent your way. He puts them all down. Here is Jesus in this one mob scene healing the sick under the effects of sinful creation. Sinful decay of creation. Here's Jesus preaching the kingdom in the face of a people who just want miracles. Here's Jesus silencing Satan and his schemers. Jesus is fighting for his people. He's taking on every scheme the adversary throws out. He is putting them all down with sovereign effectiveness. Jesus is a fighter And and he delivers that ultimate blow, the winning blow at the cross. What we see here in Mark chapter 3 is a precursor of victory to come when he lays down his life and takes on himself the punishment for all of our sin. The wrath of God, the just wrath of God against all of our brokenness and decay. He suffers it all himself, and in its place, he grants us his righteousness. And his eternal life. His death and resurrection is the content of the message he proclaims that gives life and hope to those who hear and believe. And his death and resurrection is the sure sign that Satan is defeated. And victory belongs to the Lord. At the cross, here is the death blow. The victory is his there. But the battle is finished once and for all. In Revelation chapter 19. We're told, here's a rider on a white horse. And his robe is drenched in the blood of his enemies. Because he has come to fight for his bride, the church. And to put down Satan and the enemies of God once and for all. There's a day when the battle is finished. Today, the battle is won. One day, the battle is finished. Jesus is a fighter And he's fought for his people. He fights for you. You should find strength, encouragement, hope this morning. I know you're facing some junk. I know you're going through some garbage. Jesus is not indifferent to that. He is not blind to that. He has addressed it long before you knew it was coming. In his death and resurrection, we find the power and the strength and the hope to press forward. Jesus fights for his people. Our second scene gives us another bit of confidence. And that confidence comes from this. Jesus has a church of fighters. Now, when I wrote that, I thought, that might not be the best way to word it. Because sometimes churches are known for fighting. That's not what I mean, like fighting each other. I want carpet. I want tile. Whatever. That's not, that's not the type of fighting we're talking about, though we can just admit, okay, whatever. Jesus, who has fought for his people, then calls to himself a group of people to fight with him. Verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called these people to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. So Mark first gives us the function of the apostles. This is the work they're supposed to do. He gives us three things. Verse 14, that they might be with Him. That's Jesus. Second, that they might be sent out to preach. And then verse 15, the third part of their task, they're to have authority to drive out demons. So they're to be with Jesus, sent to preach, Authority to drive out demons. To be with Jesus, that's the prerequisite for all of their work. They have to dwell with Him, sit under His teaching, hear what He says, experience the wholeness that is in Him, the peace that is in Him, the power and the love that is in Him, the same that was found by so many sick people that day on the Sea of Galilee. They're sent to preach, to proclaim the same news that Jesus preaches, the good news of God. The disciples are preaching the same as Jesus did to so many people who misunderstood Him by the sea that day. The disciples are given authority to drive out demons. Christ's power is granted to them in some measure so that they can silence this evil just as Jesus silenced it at the sea that day. Do you see how Jesus duplicates In his disciples, his ministry. What Jesus is doing, he calls his disciples to do as well. Be with me. Preach the gospel. Shut up the enemy. Take territory back from him. Jesus multiplies himself in the life of his disciples. And this type of work is exactly what the disciples do. If we were to fast forward Mark chapter 6, we'll get there in a few weeks, Jesus sends them out and they do the same work that Jesus does. They heal, they preach, they fight evil. So they fulfill their commissioning in small part in Mark chapter 6, but they fulfill it in large part after the resurrection when the gospel catches fire around the Mediterranean world. They carry out the work of Jesus to those places where Jesus has not been named. So doesn't this give us insight as to how we ought to think about ourselves as a church? It answers the question for us, what is the very nature of the church? We are not a social club. We're not a museum preserving traditions of the past. We're not isolationists walling ourselves off from the outside world. We are not a political action committee. But we are with Jesus, students of His, commissioned to speak the gospel and empowered to take territory back from the enemy. As a church, we are an outpost of heaven engaged in active warfare for the sake of souls. People are not the enemy of the gospel. They're never the enemy of the gospel. But people are the target of the gospel. And you came in here wounded and bruised today. Think about what that life is like without Christ on your side. These people are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And the task is given to us the same as it was to the apostles. That we would preach the gospel. That we would draw people to Christ. That we would win souls from the enemy. If we're going to do this right, it has to start with you and I being with Jesus, I love that phrase in verse 14. He called his disciples to be with him. Oftentimes when we pray for someone else, we'll use this phrase. We'll pray, God, be with them. And that's a sweet prayer. What we're saying in that simple phrase, I think, is, God, would you move all of heaven's resources to this person's aid? God, be with them. Maybe, just maybe, Our prayers should shift a little bit. And we should pray, God, help him, help her to be with you. To sit with you. To hear your word. To know your love. Experience your peace. To walk in power and joy. Help my brother, help my sister. To be with you. Good counsel there in your next conversation with a Christian friend. Hey, are you with Jesus? How have you been with him this week? You've been with Him in prayer, with Him in the Word, with Him in worship. And if we're not with Jesus corporately and privately, how can we expect to effectively proclaim the message of Jesus? How can we expect to have power over the enemy and his schemes if we are not first with Jesus? We've got to be a people that dwell with Him, feast on His Word daily. I don't know how we make it without being in the Word of God every day. Not because legalism requires it, but because my soul requires it. How can I have anything more important on my schedule than an audience with the king? And your soul deserves that feast every day. To be with Jesus prepares us to proclaim the word and to fight the enemy. And after describing the work that the apostles are going to do, Mark then gives us a roll call of names. Simon, who's called Peter. James, son of Zebedee, his brother John. I don't know what's up with this nickname. We don't have a footnote from Mark that says, here's how they got that name. Maybe they were loud talkers. Uh, maybe they were bold and brave young men. Maybe it's Jesus being sarcastic and they're just a couple of wallflowers. I don't know. Well, It's one of those questions the Lord will answer for us in heaven. Or James and John can answer for us, for that matter. They got these nicknames from Jesus. And then there's Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. I'm struck by a few things in this list. First, the disciples have names. We don't know a lot about all of their backgrounds. A lot of them we we just know by their name and that's it. One of them we barely know at all. Bartholomew isn't a proper name. It just means son of this guy. There's a lot we don't know, but we've got names. Jesus knows our names, and He knows our sketchy past. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our future frailty. And Jesus doesn't know an idea of us. He doesn't just have an impression of us. He knows the truth of us, and He calls such people into kingdom service. Have you heard Jesus call your name? Have you said yes at His call? to turn to the one who laid down his life and rose again, to trust him and him alone to save you from your sin, to rescue you from the penalty of that sin, to grant you righteousness and eternal life. Have you heard your name and answered that call? I hope you have. And I think it's imperative for all of us who have responded to that call to make sure we live our lives in such a way that the people around us can hear their names called by Jesus as well. Does your lifestyle help or hinder the people in your life hear the call of Jesus? Mom, dad, are you living your life in such a way that your kids can hear the call of Jesus? Now, you've made it to church today so you can escape that little bit of guilt at this comment. But Do your children know you at home as someone who is compassionate? And patient, who does not provoke them to anger, who disciplines fairly and in love, who prays, who encourages. Do they know you? In, in those acts of holiness, they hear the call of Jesus, Dad. They hear the call of Jesus, Mom. When you walk with Him yourself and you do so visibly in home, what about your co workers? What about your neighbors? What about your spouse? Husband? When you come home at night from work, you have an opportunity to help your wife advance in her holiness and in her discipleship. Especially if you've got little ones at home, brother, before you get out of that car, you buckle up to go in and rescue, to help her. Take care of those kids. You've dealt with bozos at work all day. You go in and you're going to handle your kids with grace and maturity and energy for the sake of your wife's holiness so that she can hear her name called by Christ as well. Another thing that strikes me in this list of names is how Mark keeps the cross in front of us. The last name we're given is Judas Iscariot. Every time he's mentioned, he's always named as the one who betrays Jesus. Here we are on the front end of the gospel, in a sense far away from the cross, but the cross is put in front of us still. And even last week, at the end of the passage we studied last week, chapter 3, verse 6, the cross is put in front of us there. The Pharisees go out and begin to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Mark does does not want us to forget where this is all going. And so the cross is not some surprise to Jesus. He knows why he's come. He's come to give his life as a ransom for sinners. The cross is not some unfortunate incident that just sneaks up on Jesus and then needs interpretation in retrospect. This was the plan all along. His face is set on the cross throughout his ministry. He moves with such intentionality for the sake of your salvation. What an incredible privilege to be called by Jesus by name and to be handed the mantle of his ministry, the church that follows Jesus is going to be consumed with compassion for the lost and hurting. The church that follows Jesus is going to fight against evil with the gospel proclaimed. The church that follows Jesus is victorious just as he is over death. We've got a beautiful portrait today of Jesus the fighter. He fights on our behalf and then he calls us to fight as well. He sets us on a path of certain victory. I'm not sure how true the following story is, but it's a great story. I read a story about a Scottish pastor named Aeneas Sage in 1720. Uh, He was a big man, a strong man, Pete-esque in his stature, Uh, but People didn't want to come to his church. He couldn't get people to come and, and, and listen to his preaching. The most influential man in the community was not Pastor Sage, but it was this strong man who was just known as Big Rory. I think this is funny because I have a brother named Rory, and he slap fights, so it's hilarious. But Big Rory, he's, he's the town hoodlum. He's, he's the big man. And so Pastor Sage thought, you know, if I could best Big Rory then I would win the respect of the people in the town. And so he challenged Big Rory to some Highland games. And they toss the caber and they carry heavy stones and whatever Scottish people do for fun, they do that. And sure enough, look, Pastor Sage beat Big Rory. It was an unbelievable victory on his part. And he thought for sure the next Sunday that all the townsfolk would come to church. When it was time for church... The only new face in the crowd was Big Rory. (laughs) So Pastor Sage and Big Rory hatched a plan. They knew that the people needed to hear from God's Word. So they went out, and each man picked up two people and carried them back to church. (laughs) Then they locked them inside, and they went out, and they picked up two more people. They did that until the church was full. People couldn't escape. And just to make sure, Big Rory would stand at the back of the church at the door with a large club, and so service was conducted with a a full church. Uh, The writer of this story said, Pastor Sage made the people very orthodox. That's the understatement of all literature history. He made them very orthodox. Well, can you imagine being a person in that town and you see Pastor Sage and Big Rory coming down the street? There's a sense of inevitability to that situation. When these big bros come, they're going to get you, and you're going to go, and you're going to sit under God's Word. That's kind of what it is when Jesus the fighter comes to rescue you. Who or what can possibly stand in his way? Who or what is going to possibly challenge Jesus? Who or what could possibly cause him to fail? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, I'm persuaded that not even death or life or angels or rulers or things present or things to come. Hostile powers, height or depth or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Jesus Christ, thank you for being our fighter. Thank you for being our defender. Thank you for being our protector. Thank you for being our rescuer. We praise your name for what you have done on our behalf. You're mighty, and there is no one to challenge you. There is no scheme of the enemy that throws you off. Victory is yours. I'm grateful that we read Mark chapter three in light of the cross and in light of the empty tomb. We know the battle is won and we look forward to that day when the battle is finished once and for all. Oh God, would you call to yourself this morning friends in here that are fighting on their own and losing this battle, who through their morality or a sense of religious deeds feel like they are earning their way to victory Father, silence that demonic reasoning once and for all and let them put all their hope and trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Turn to Him in trust and faith for their salvation, the one who died and rose again. Father, for my brothers and sisters who are fighting battles this day, strengthen these weak legs, put steel in our bellies that we would endure every scheme of the enemy and do so in the power of the resurrected Christ. Thank you. For the power that is ours through you, set our eyes on the world around us to preach boldly, to face off with the enemy, to rescue people from all of his schemes, that your name would be glorified and souls would be saved. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.